from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello Earthlings and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I am Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games, a.k.a. Skartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Each week I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is a brand new kid to show biz. With knowledge, I persevere, but find out, do me a favor. favor. Let me in here, and we can find a rhyme to fill in space and drop the bass with a taste of light. It's summertime, baby, and I'm loving it. It's like in office space. I did nothing, Michael. I did nothing, and it was everything that I thought it could be. Uh, it's been great having some time off. Um, I love teaching, as I tell people all the time. Uh, I do love teaching. I always love starting up a new school year. I love every minute I'm in the classroom, uh, but I do love getting away from that building in June. Uh, There's a Simpsons meme that I put up recently that was when they're coming home from church. And they're like, Marge is like, hey, you're getting your church clothes all ruffled up. I probably said this last week. Whatever. Uh, you're getting your church clothes all ruffled up. And Lisa's like, who cares? This is the best part of the week. It's the longest possible time before more church. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to having a lot more free time this summer. And as you know, I'm working on a book that I'm going to be hopefully finishing and sending off to publishers maybe. And uh, I'll be doing a road trip with the Duchess and uh, seeing some people. Uh, Murfreesboro, I'm looking at you. Tallahassee, what up? Uh, Crozet, New Jersey. Uh, yeah. So anyway, um, let me say also, uh, if there's any stu- students who I had last year who are now graduated, uh, maybe they're listening because that's when I add you on Facebook is when you graduate. So if there's any of you listening in, hey, what's happening? Just what you always wanted, more listening to Mr. P. Oh, boy, can't wait. Uh, last week, I said that I was so irritated when I – and I do this, and I hear, I hear people say it, and it makes me angry. Uh, when people say um, – Things like, you know, oh, I don't always exercise. What I do do is ride my bike sometimes. And then, of course, we get to laugh because <laughs> the person said doo-doo. Uh, I realize if you train yourself to say instead of starting the sentence, what I, and then, because you're probably going to, what, what there is, is instead of starting your sentence with what, if you start your sentence with but, <laughs> but uh, you're much more likely to uh, avoid that mistake because then you could say, I don't exercise much. But I do ride my bike sometimes. And then you're less likely to commit that goofy mistake of doubling up your words. Um, I, I don't have time to really... T- this is going to be the longest show ever. I expect that by the time we're done, it'll be like an hour and a half. Easy. There's a lot of stuff I've been looking at. And it hasn't even been a full week since the last show. What's up with that? That, show, that goes to show what happens when I am left alone with my own devices to, to just sit and look at news and current events and theories about education and do research and stuff. It ends up like this. So I hope you appreciate it, man, because this is what I'm doing with my time, as well as playing Skyrim and Uplink. Thanks, Stu, for the Uplink suggestion. I wasn't wasting enough time with Skyrim. Now i got to play Uplink. 
Anyway, uh, speaking of video games, there's this very interesting controversy about this group called Feminist Frequency, and I'll put a link to Feminist Frequency's YouTube channel in the show notes. Basically, it's a really cool uh, organization. I think it's an organization. As far as I can tell, there's one woman. But she does this great series of videos about how women are represented in the media. And they did a great video about the Bechdel test, which you should check out. And they're interested in doing a series about video games and how women are portrayed in games. And she put out this, she started a Kickstarter, you know, where if you don't know about Kickstarter, it's a website where you can say, hey, I'm going to be doing this project. Please contribute some money and spread the word. And I just gave some money to a project uh, to do with a Go documentary about the board game Go. And uh, I've given money to a Kickstarter for the Style Wars movie. If any of you took the hip hop class with me or you've seen that documentary film, Style Wars, uh, it's a great movie. Uh, The masters are apparently in some sort of danger. So they were raising money to restore the, the masters of that film. And anyway, so Kickstarter is a great project. This woman put out a thing saying, okay, there's planes again, but apparently nobody can hear them on the track, so I'm not even going to mention them when they fly overhead, except it's hard to concentrate when the man is spying on me with his invisible planes. Um... Sorry. Okay, so yeah, this woman uh, who runs Feminist Frequency put out a little video saying, I want to do this series of videos about how women are represented in games, and I'm looking for some money. So please donate some money. Here's what's going to be in the videos. Thank you for your support. That was pretty much it. It was a very innocuous thing. Now, because it deals with sexism in video games, it means that a whole bunch of very immature jerks lost their minds as they often do whenever you mention any threads of sexism when it comes to video games. And people went nuts with attacking her and vandalizing her Wikipedia page and sending threats and all sorts of horrible stuff. And she has chosen to leave the uh, horrible, nasty responses that she's gotten on YouTube in order to prove to people... You know, some people say, oh, you're just making it up, you're exaggerating. She's like, no, I'm not. Look at the comments on YouTube and you tell me I'm exaggerating. So uh, it, it, watch the videos, definitely. And if you have uh, if you have too much faith in humanity, you can read the comments on YouTube because that's often a good fix for that. Uh, one last thing before we get to the actual show show is uh, this thing about balance. I wrote a blog piece today because uh, I had a, an interesting insight about the concept of balance. And so I'll just briefly read an excerpt from the thing that I wrote and then if you want to read more you can go to uh, my blog fbesp.org slash synapse and uh, you can read the whole post our lives are forever caught in this sort of impossible balancing act we have to exercise and keep up with the news but leisure is a guaranteed human right delicious food is yummy but eating healthy is so very important we can't obsess over what other people think about us but we don't want to be clueless buffoons or scumbags who constantly and probably unwittingly anger or belittle people so here's the interesting thing I realized we can never achieve a perfect balance sometimes we're gonna work ourselves too hard and other times we'll feel shiftless and lazy. Sometimes we'll be too hard on kids, other times we'll be too lenient. Sometimes we'll feel like we need more me time, and other times we will feel isolated and lonely. Sometimes I strive to achieve this perfect balance, and I get angry with myself if and when I don't strike it. But now I realize that that's just a trap of the ego. The ego has so many devious traps. The key is not to strive for an impossible balance, but to know thyself. There it is again, temet noske. And be aware of when you need to switch from one side of the scale to the other. So that's from the post I wrote. Uh, And the other thing I realized is the more we try to drag ourselves to one side of that scale, the more likely we are to succumb to the wrong forces. For example, when things are taking a long time and you're in a hurry, rushing usually makes things worse and you end up 
things taking longer, right? I mean, you probably had that experience. So I just thought that was interesting. And uh, if you have some thoughts about how you try to find that balance in your life, I'd love to hear it because I think we all have that struggle in finding various forms of balance. And I think it's important to remember that we can never have a perfect balance, but rather we can recognize when we are not balanced and move to the other side of the scale in order to try to counteract it. And now, current events. Uh, this is, and we also have some not so current events. <laughs> um, a, a hitchhiker got shot, and this isn't. Uh, that's not. I, I don't know. Maybe that's not a, a most amazing story ever. But there's a twist to it that uh, comes in later. Uh, this is in Montana. Um, there was a guy who was uh, the quote. Okay, here's blah, blah, here's the article. He was sitting down to have a little lunch, and this guy drives up. Valley County Sheriff Glenn Meyer told the Associated Press he thought he was going to give him a ride. As he approached the vehicle, the guy pulls out his weapon and shoots him. It's as simple as that. Ray Dolan, 39, will live. He got hit in the arm and was being treated at Francis Mahone Deaconess Hospital in Glass. Glasgow, Montana. Now, here's the kicker. Dolan was crossing the United States in order to write a book entitled The Kindness of America. <sighs> there it is. There it is. Oh, you're trying to document the kindness of America? <laughs> Take that! <laughs> um, meanwhile, in China, how's that for a convenient segue? Uh, 50, the, there was a Gallup poll that said majority of Chinese prioritize environment over economy. And I thought this was interesting because we hear a lot about how China is like, oh, it's polluted, whatever. But a lot of free market fundamentalists especially say, oh, the, the, but the people want the economy. That's the only thing that's really important to them. They, they're willing to take some pollution if it means they can have the economy grow and stuff. Um, well, Gallup poll found something different. 57% of Chinese adults surveyed in 2011 before the country's economic slowdown grabbed headlines prioritized protecting the environment, even at the risk of curbing economic growth. About one in five believed in economic growth is more important. Chinese attitudes are typical of those in other emerging market economies where residents sided with the environment over the economy in earlier surveys. Similarly, Americans historically prioritized environment protection over economic growth from 1985 to 2008. However, economic growth has taken priority since the economic recession deepened in 2009. If China's economic troubles worsen, residents' attitudes could change too. So, yeah, uh, we often hear that it's, it's a choice you have to make between the environment and the economy, and I would say it's a false choice, but um, it certainly is true that, again, we have this kind of split between money and truth, and in this case, the truth is the, the environment will not last forever. We cannot treat this planet like an infinite garbage dump um, or an infinite bottle of water if we expect to live on this planet for another you know, 100, 200 years or beyond. So in terms of our grandchildren's future, truth needs to take a priority here instead of money. So we need to put some reins and some screws in on Wall Street in order to control the lust for profits that cause so much environmental degradation, or else we won't have a habitat for our grandchildren to live in. And they'll look back and go, you scumbags, why did you do all that stuff? And we'll go, hey, gee, you needed to make money. J.P. Morton needed to make money. We couldn't have the government in on the free market now put your gas mask on and go out into the bubble city to scavenge for food 
<sighs> and in Myanmar, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, who was an awesome, she's a great lady. You should totally learn about her if you don't know who she is. Um, she was a political prisoner in Burma for many years. She was under house arrest. She only recently got released from house arrest, and she's now a member of parliament. Um, and there's this sort of this new relationship between the rest of the world and the government of Myanmar, which is basically a military junta. And a lot of people are saying, "Hey, let's invest in Myanmar, which is also known as Burma." Um, and and so yeah, people are saying let's invest there. And uh, she, Aung San Suu Kyi, is saying we need to be careful. The headline is Suu Kyi urges caution regarding investments in Myanmar. Uh, quote: I would like to call for aid and investment that will strengthen the democrat de- democratization process. She told the annual meeting of the International Labour Organization in Geneva, which has long supported her cause. We accept that investments must pay off, she added, but we would like these profits to be shared between the investors and our people. What a notion. She's encouraging barriers to free trade. Let's get the WTO over there to shut her up. She sounds like Brooksley Bourne. Boo, boo, get a haircut, hippie. Um, in other news, a mother put angel dust in her kid's food. This was crazy. Uh, I'm pretty sure this is Florida, but I don't remember exactly where it was. But maybe that's just because I hear about crazy things happening and I think, oh, that happened in Florida because I used to live in Florida. But maybe not. I don't know. Let's see if I can figure it out. Here's the thing. Uh, It's from some website. WDTN. You know what? Look, people who run websites... You should have the place where your website is located if you're a local news organization. You can't just assume everybody knows exactly where this stuff is. Uh, Oakwood, I don't know. Contact us. Here we go. Open it up. Contact us. Okay, Dayton, Ohio. I guess this happened in Dayton, Ohio. I don't know. Come on, get it together, people. Oh, sorry, no, this happened in Austin. I'm an idiot. See, here's the thing. Most news stories at the start have a dateline, which is the date and the location of where the story took place. Now, if I weren't a stupid moron, I would not have wasted a minute of your time just now talking you through my search to find out where WDTN.com, Channel 2, NBC's news leader, is located. Instead, I would just realize that it says right here on the screen, Austin. So... Okay, it happened in Austin. I presume Austin, Texas. Anyway, uh, yeah, this mom, oh, it's so sad. She put PCP in her kid's food. Uh, police have filed an arrest warrant for a mother, they say, put PCP, also known as angel dust, in her six-year-old's lunch, causing the child to hallucinate and hear, quote, banging in her head. The, uh, the, the, the kid went to the guidance counselor. The counselor called the 34-year-old mother, Tarina Gutierrez, who reportedly told her, quote, don't call EMS and don't call CPS, Child Protection Services. I'm on my way. Yeah, asking that the school not call Child Protective Services. That's a surefire way to make sure they don't call them. That doesn't raise suspicions at all. Good thinking, lady. Uh, Authorities said that when the drug was also found in Gutierrez's blood, Child Protective Services removed the child from the home and placed her with a family member. The girl later told CPS workers that her mom made her lunch that day and that her lunch meat tasted like, quote, fireworks. Oh, that's so sad. That poor kid. I just thought it was crazy that she... I'm on my way. Don't call EMS. Don't don't call EMS. Don't call an ambulance. She'll be fine. I know how to deal with angel dust. I mean, my daughter's random headaches that seem to appear for no reason. What an idiot. What a stupid lady. Um, also, I have a couple of stories that are in the not very current anymore events 
Uh, these are sent to me by faithful listeners. Thank you for these. And there's more coming up later in the show. So stay tuned for old news. Uh, John Mouse sent me this thing about Tony Blair uh, being interrupted by a protester at the Levison Inquiry. Um, j- yeah, that. Tony Blair accused of war crimes by intruder at Levison Inquiry. I don't really know what the Levison Inquiry is. There was some judge who was asking Tony Blair about some stuff. Uh, Lord Justice Levison has ordered an investigation into security procedures at his inquiry into the media after a protester burst into the courtroom to shout at Tony Blair while the former prime minister gave evidence. Now, in my opinion, the funniest thing about this story is that we this lets you know exactly and instantly that this is a British protester. Uh, the article says the protester, later named as David Lawley Wacklin, 49, shouted, Excuse me, this man should be arrested for war crimes. J.P. Morgan paid him off for the Iraq war. Three months after we invaded Iraq, they held up the Iraq bank for 20 billion pounds. He was then paid six million dollars every year and still is from J.P. Morgan six months after he left office. The man is a war criminal. Now, the fact that he started his rant with, excuse me, I wonder if that took place in America. Eh, No, it did not. That took place in Britain or Canada. I could see a Canadian protester doing that. Because in America, it would be, F you, this man's a scumbag war criminal. Send him to the slammer. 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 Because that's what we do in the United States. When we are mad about something, we just repeat things over and over again. This dude is coming out with this very clear, coherent thesis with numbers and everything. It's so polite. This man should be arrested. Should be. Should be. Should be arrested for war crimes. This man should be arrested. I would prefer that this man be arrested for war crimes, please. Um. Yeah. Now. Is what he says true, or is he some lunatic? Well, okay, obviously he's mad. Obviously he's a little um, desperate because he feels like he can't make his case any other way, and the man and the media and everybody's ignoring him. So the question is, what is the relationship between Tony Blair and J.P. Morgan and the Iraq War? Okay, well, let me give you some facts. Tony Blair joined J.P. Morgan in 2007 in a, quote, senior advisory capacity. And I will link you to a BBC News article about that relationship that started in 2007. Um, J.P. Morgan has been, in the words of this Bloomberg uh, news article, uh, selected to operate the Trade Bank of Iraq. Uh, So that's according to Business Week. But this guy's simplistic one-to-one accusation is sensationalistic and juvenile. So it's not fair to say, like, oh, Tony Blair invaded Iraq only to support uh, J.P. Morgan and blah, blah, blah. I mean, whatever. It's not that simple. It's not that direct. Uh, J.P. Morgan paid him off of the Iraq war. That's a really dumb way to put it. And I think it may detract from the reality that J.P. Morgan did well after the Iraq invasion, and we don't need to find direct one-to-one links that make Tony Blair look culpable and, and you know, bootlicking in, to J.P. Morgan. It's not necessary to find those direct relationships. In the same way that people are like, oh, 9-11 was an inside job. Why do I say that? Because Bush, the Bush administration, you know, uh, benefited so much from 9-11. You know what? They didn't need to cause it. Uh, in order to benefit from 9-11. Yes, the Bush administration benefited in some ways from 9-11, but there's no evidence that they caused it. It's so stupid. I hate having that argument with people. So, you know, and listen, by the way, if there's anybody here listening to this who's a 9-11 truther, I'm sorry, save your breath. I've heard it all a million times, and I'm not convinced. I think it's stupid to go pursuing that uh, when there's real things we could be doing, like taking action on Amnesty International's website to try to save people's lives in Syria or whatever. Now, is Tony Blair responsible for war crimes? Well, that's a very serious accusation, which deserves very serious attention. And its I don't think it's as 
sensible to dismiss that outright uh, in the same way we would dismiss the J.P. Morgan thing because um, the the I don't know about the British chain of command, but the United States president is the commander in chief of the armed forces, and I assume that. Tony Blair, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, uh, also has some sort of supreme authority over the armed forces there. They make the decisions about whether to go to war or not, and what happens in those wars. Well, the International Criminal Court has never pursued the question of whether the Bush administration, uh, Bush himself, Cheney, uh, Rumsfeld, or any of the other individuals who uh, were in charge of that military uh, enterprise... Uh, or the British counterparts, were uh, responsible for war crimes. Um, That's for reasons we won't explore here. However, there is another organization called the Kuala Lumpur War Crimes Commission, which was set up in 2007 as an alternative to the ICC and the KLWCC, the Kuala Lumpur War Crimes Commission, says that the ICC uh, is kind of biased in the way that it chooses who it's going to prosecute. The Kuala Lumpur group is not binding it doesn't have the same authority as the international criminal court however it's not just a group of idiots in a room saying no that person is guilty i mean these are legal scholars these are international law experts and and people who uh who take this stuff very seriously in november 2011 the klwcc held four days of hearings about the culpability of bush and blair in crimes against peace for the invasion of iraq and the verdict quote unquote i'll say okay maybe it's not a legally binding verdict but the decision was uh guilty for both men uh here's how Richard Falk, who is the UN Special Rapporteur on Palestinian Human Rights, put it. Quote, uh, the tribunal acknowledged that its verdict was not enforceable in a normal manner associated with a criminal court operating within a sovereign state or as constituted by international agreement, as is the case with the International Criminal Court. But the KLWCC followed a judicial juridical procedure purported to operate in a legally responsible manner. This would endow its findings and recommendations with a legal weight expected to extend beyond a moral condemnation of the defendants, but in a manner that is not entirely evident. So it's not entirely clear what happens with these findings. Now, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen with these findings. Nothing. The International Criminal Court is probably going to ignore it, in large part because the United States and Britain are the most powerful nations in the world, and we have a lot of say over who does and does not get investigated or tried for war crimes. I dare say that if there were total parity in terms of who got tried for war crimes, Henry Kissinger, at the very least, would have been visited by some Interpol agents at some point in his life. Uh, Christopher Hitchens wrote a really good book called The Trials of Henry Kissinger, and there's a documentary film which gives you the TLDR version. If you can't read the whole thing, you can watch the movie at least. Um, the article goes on to say uh, from, what's his name, uh, Richard Falk, the KLWCC added two orders to its verdict that had been adopted in accordance with the charter of the KLWCC that controlled the operating framework of the tribunal. One, report the findings of guilt of the two accused former heads of state to the International Criminal Court in The Hague, and two, enter the names of Bush and Blair in the register of war criminals maintained by the Kuala Lumpur organization. Now, a lot of people probably look at that and say, okay, big deal, they're in a list somewhere in Kuala Lumpur. So what? Um, I don't know. It's a start, I guess, maybe. I don't know. Um, Also, Phil, so anyway, moving on. Um, Phil Olson sent me a very interesting story called The Ongoing Impact of Coney 2012, and this was a 
sort of audio story thing from on the media, which is a good organization. They do some good work looking at how things are reported in the media. It's sort of a meta media journalism outpost. Um, and uh, they interview this one guest who talks about the impact of Coney 2012. And the guest says many of the same things I've said. It's a starting point. You're obviously not going to get as many participants as you like, et cetera, et cetera. They were talking about this cover the night thing that Coney 2012 said they were going to try to do in April, I think it was, um, where they get everybody to come out and you know, put up signs with Coney all over them and raise awareness, and then we can put keep the pressure on, put the pressure on, and then keep it on uh, in order to get the U.S. government and other governments to take action uh, to capture Coney. And I've said a lot about Coney already, so I'm not going to say more about it here. But uh, I am interested to see. Oh yeah, and the guy said so. They asked him, you know, t- cover the night uh, was not the amazing, you know, worldwide uprising that they thought it might be. What's your response to that? And he said exactly what I said. You know what? Anybody who's ever tried to get people involved in a political campaign knows it's a really long and hard process. And for every 10,000 flyers you hand out, maybe three people will follow up by looking at a website or coming to a meeting at some point in the future. It's a very, very difficult thing. And most of what you do is so-called wasted energy because you're talking to people who ultimately aren't going to get involved and you can't let that stop you. Like that's just the way it works. That's part of the process. You have to just deal with that. Um, So yeah, long distance run, like I've said in the past. And now... Uh, stuff going on in the U.S. economy and elsewhere in the world. Uh, the Great Recession erased nearly 40% of family wealth in the United States. Um, this is from the Los Angeles Times. The Great Recession took such a heavy toll on the economy that the typical American family lost nearly 40% of its wealth from 2007 to 2010, shaving the median net worth to a level not seen since the early 1990s. The Federal Reserve said in a new report Monday that median family net worth, the point smack in the middle of those richer and poorer, fell to 77300 in 2010 from 126400 three years earlier after adjusting for inflation. Now, those who know the difference between median and mean and average and all that know that this number is open to debate because when you talk about median I don't know if I have these terms right but I think you're talking about if you took everybody in the country let's say you had you know 350 million people there uh, you have 175 million over here who are poor 175 million over here who are richer and the person who's right in the middle that's the one who's the median Now, I think that's the way it is. Maybe it's not. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that person is representative of the majority of the population. You might have the majority of the population making $20,000 a year, but the median is $77,000 because you have some a few people at the very top who are making so much money. And it looks like the average is doing great. But... Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the number of people. So there's lots of ways of computing these statistics, and I, I don't want to tell you which one this is, but I would say that the median family net worth at 77000 now that's net worth, that's not income, okay. But um, I, 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 be careful, don't, don't assume that means one thing when it means another, whatever. 
the point is a lot of family wealth got wiped out in the Great Recession. One more reason why we need some changes on Wall Street to impose some regulation so that these banks don't do it again, which they're going to do it again. I'm sorry, people. It's going to happen again unless we make some serious changes. Dodd-Frank was not a serious change. It was a small change. I'm glad we enacted Dodd-Frank. It's better than doing nothing, but it's not much better than doing nothing. And... Um, Robert Reich, who was the Secretary of the Treasury, maybe under Clinton, he worked with he worked in the Clinton administration. Uh, he's generally a pretty cool economist. Uh, he said he put out this new piece recently on well, I found it on Reader Supported News, uh, and it says why the U.S. economy can't get out of first gear. I'm going to read a bit of it. <clears throat> the major reason this recovery has been so anemic is not Europe's debt crisis. It's not Japan's tsunami. It's not Wall Street's continuing excesses. It's not, as right-wing economists tell us, because taxes are too high on corporations and the rich and safety nets are too generous to the needy. It's not even, as some liberals contend, because the Obama administration hasn't spent enough on a temporary Keynesian stimulus. It's because American consumers whose spending is 70% of an economic activity don't have the dough to buy enough to boost the economy, and they can no longer borrow like they could before the crash of 2008. Now, stepping back from the article for a minute here, I would say that this is what the stimulus plans that uh, Paul Krugman and other people have advocated is supposed to do. It's supposed to boost that spending among the American consumers, and especially the middle class, um, and hopefully that will, you know, have a knock-on. It does have a knock-on effect. When people spend money, that creates more demand, and then businesses can grow their businesses, and you have more people working, and it, you know, it becomes a cycle. That's how growth works. However, um, what he's saying here is that there's no simple answer. It's not, you know, the idea is that a, a stimulus is supposed to be a booster shot into the immune system of the economy, and then it'll sort of spiral on itself. Um, but as he points out, it's a much larger long-term problem. So he says this toward the end of the article, what to do? There's no simple answer in the short term, except to hope that we stay in first gear and don't slide backwards. Over the longer term, the answer is to make sure the middle class gets far more of the gains from economic growth, which is really the point I want to emphasize here. A lot of times people say, oh, income inequality, whatever, who cares? People work hard for their money, quit trying to punish success, blah, blah, blah. Even from a purely uh, utilitarian economic point of view, it's not about punishing success. It's about making sure that the middle class, that we, first of all, that we have a middle class because we are rapidly becoming a nation that has no middle class. We, we are, in the words of Tavis Smiley and Cornell West, becoming the rich and the rest of us. I am the 99%. Okay. Hey, it's true. Um, and, and, and look, I'll use myself as an example, as I so often do, because I know myself very well. Um, when I have money, I tend to spend it. I'm not very conservative with my money. I tend to buy video games, and I go out to eat, and I buy crap I see in the stores, and I buy books and stuff like that. Um, so that's a good thing, because then the people who work for those businesses I go to, then they're getting money, right? And when you cut the funds of school teachers, you know, cut p paychecks for school teachers and stuff, and, and you have uh, businesses that are focused only on their bottom line and they lay off all the workers in Detroit in order to build a factory in, you know, China or wherever, uh, you're, you're going to have the, the economy in the United States will necessarily contract because the people in this country who, as he says, 70% of economic activity is consumer spending. If we don't have any money, we can't spend it. 
Now, for the last 30 years or so, the Wall Street has said, that's okay. We don't need to give people who are working uh, actual living wages. They don't need money to spend. They can just borrow. They can go into debt. And then when they somehow magically get more money in the future, then they can pay off that debt. And some conspiracy theorists would say that Bank of America doesn't ever want you to pay off your debt. They want you to always be in debt and that you, they can charge you late fees and they can charge you interest and all the rest of it in order to make their money. And that reminds me, I just recently tried to cancel my credit card to Bank of America because they were charging me some weird fee. You didn't buy anything, so we're just randomly charging you some money, which I think is ridiculous. So I told Bank of America, I wrote them, I paid my last bill and I said, cancel my card. This is it. I'm done. They sent me four letters in two days saying, well, we're sorry you didn't understand this fee structure. Let me try to explain it to you. And then the next letter says, oh, thank you for your payment. We're sorry you're unhappy. We'll try to be in touch. And then the next letter is like, we've canceled your account. Uh, you owe us you know, $12 or whatever. Uh, we look forward to getting that. And then another letter. And these were all mailed separately. It's ridiculous. Anyway, um, that's why the economy stuck in first gear, according to Robert Reich. Um, Stu sent me something about Wall Street's woes worsen. And in addition to being an interesting alliterative headline, uh, this is about J.P. Morgan Chase and Facebook. Uh, here's what the article says. Almost four years after the financial crisis began, Wall Street still can't get it right. Investor anger mounted Wednesday over the initial public offering of Facebook stock last week, which was fumbled by the banks that managed the deal and complicated by technical problems at the Nasdaq Stock Exchange. Shareholders filed at least two lawsuits against Facebook and Morgan Stanley, the bank that shepherded the IPO, over reports that it withheld negative analyst reports about Facebook from some clients before the company went public. Now, I will point out, now, whenever you hear people talking about tort reform and reforming the laws and the, our litigious society, we very rarely hear about lawsuits from Wall Street against Wall Street. These lawsuits go on all the time. Why? Because a lot of companies in the United States, and it's true about places elsewhere too, but I think it's particularly bad here, um, a lot of these companies don't respond to anything other than lawsuits. So, for instance, when the Xboxes all were red-ringing to death everywhere you turned, uh, I don't think it was until people got together and had a class-action lawsuit against Microsoft that Microsoft realized the scope of the problem and realized how glib they had been about dealing with it. And so f suddenly when they were faced with legal challenges, they were like, oh, don't worry, we'll fix every Xbox. Um, so, unfortunately, I think that Lawsuits are a necessary evil that a lot of people rely on in order to get companies to pay attention to them when they otherwise would not. So keep that in mind next time you hear people talking about eh, tort reform and eh, getting rid of nuisance lawsuits. Uh, because people on Wall Street sue each other all the time. And those aren't considered nuisance lawsuits. Those are considered that's the way things get done on Wall Street. But when some old woman drives through McDonald's and she has boiling coffee poured into her lap... Suddenly, oh, oh, she's a nuisance lawsuit. I'm telling you people, go find out the truth about what happened to that woman. It's not so funny and cute when you know the actual story about what happened to her. Everyone knows that some woman sued McDonald's because the coffee was too hot, but they don't know what actually happened there. She had like third degree burns. She was an elderly woman. It was insane. And why does McDonald's keep the coffee that hot all the time? Anyway, first of all, so that you can't tell it it tastes like water because it basically is water. So heat disguises lack of taste. Uh, second of all, it's so that they don't have to try to um, maintain, they don't have to heat it up each time someone orders it, or they can have a larger supply of it. It's all economics. Again, it's that equation from Fight Club: A times B times C equals X. Okay, that's what it's about for McDonald's. And it wasn't until they had to pay a lot of money 
that they realized, oh, wait, maybe we shouldn't do it that way because it's hurting people. It has a potential to hurt people, whatever. Anyway, back to this story about Wall Street's woes worsen. It was the second stumble this month by a major Wall Street firm. J.P. Morgan Chase, usually revered for taming risk, has yet to contain a growing two, three billion dollar loss. I guess when Stu sent this to me, it was only two billion. Now it's three, probably closer to four by now. It's like WorldCom, man. And when Enron went nuts, everybody knows Enron, and you should know Enron. Enron's crazy. WorldCom was three times bigger, and most people don't know about what happened at WorldCom because it was the same sort of thing. But and you know, again, the conspiracy theorists say that WorldCom. Got The news about WorldCom got released in stages because, according to the conspiracy theorists, WorldCom wanted to manage the crisis. So they released a little bit of information first, and then they leaked out a little bit more later. Oh, it turns out it's a little worse than we thought. Oh, turns out it's twice as bad as we thought. So major fraud going on there. And speaking of which, I got that book, Predator Nation, from Charles Ferguson, the guy who made the movie Inside Job. Once I get done with Michelle Alexander here, I'm going to move on to him. And someday I'll get to you, Zola Biography by Frederick Brown. Whatever. Um... Yeah, I'm also reading Et Tu, Babe, again, because I read the first chapter of the AP Kids, and, oh, I remember how much I love that book, so I'm going to hopefully try to read that again this summer. But who knows? We'll see if I have time. The missteps are further eroding the confidence of Main Street, or what was left of it after the financial meltdown of 2008, and reinforcing the sense that the game is rigged. Yeah, there it is again. The Occupy Wall Street sign is correct. The system is not broken. It's fixed. Uh, meanwhile, in Spain, there's been this amazing resistance movement to uh, the impunity of the uh, leaders of the banks there. Uh, there's an article in Al Jazeera that said, demanding querela parato. Uh, so using that hashtag, lawsuit for Rato, uh, netizens are demanding a trial of Rodrigo Rato, the former chairman of one of Spain's largest banks. Rato resigned as executive chairman of Banquia after the bank's near collapsed and subsequent bailout in May, but so far he has not faced any legal charges. Imagine that! People in Spain are actually mad about the fact that uh, bank executives are operating with impunity after nearly crashing their nation's economy into the ground. There should be more people in the United States mad about that. Uh, the article goes on. In the first 12 hours of the campaign, organizers reported that dozens of Bankia shareholders, as well as former employees, agreed to testify against Rato in a lawsuit. According to a survey by Spanish paper El País, 91% of respondents want an investigation of Rato's management of Bankia. And that might be an interesting twist. I'm wondering if, and I don't know whether this is the case or not, but I would imagine that a lot of shareholders in the United States may very well know that there was fraudulent behavior that took place and people breaking the law at places like J.P. Morgan and, and Lehman Brothers and the rest of it, but maybe they're not willing to testify or speak out against it because that could be seen as biting the hand that feeds them. There's this great scene in Quiz Show where... Uh, the prosecutor, Dick Goodwin, is talking to the chairman from Geritol, who's played by Martin Scorsese. And uh, the, the, the Geritol guy goes, you know, I don't know what you're going to do. Why are you wasting your time with this? What are you hoping to achieve? The TV shows, TV's going to go on. Uh, Geritol's going to go on. The quiz shows will be back. Uh, we don't have to rig it the way we've been rigging it. We just have to change it a little bit. What uh, What are you trying to accomplish with this? Um, and I think that it's that long-term view, you know, like if you don't, Turn your back. You know, the Scorsese says, what you have to remember is the public has a very short memory. But corporations, they never forget. And I think that might be the case here, that there's a lot of companies who are like, look, if you testify against us, we're done. We are going to come after you and get you destroyed. Get you destroyed. That's a, that's the way a lot of tough guys talk. Wait, you mess with us? You're going to, we're going to get you destroyed. Yeah, 
you're, we're going to destroy you, I think is probably what they would say. Anyway, um, <laughs> I've been messing up a lot in this podcast. I've cut it all out so you can't tell that I'm messing up, but normally I have like two or three edits on this little note card in front of me, but this week I got like 10 already and we're only 40 minutes in of what's probably going to be in a two and a half hour show. Um, yeah, so I think there should be more people from Wall Street sent to prison. And why? There's a thing from businessinsider.com that says, Dear America, you should be mad as hell about this. And there's all these charts about economic inequality and all the reasons why the system is messed up and we should be more angry. As Sister Soldier said, why aren't you angry? And, uh, yeah, nah, Fonte from uh, Little Brother said, People ask me, Fonte, why are you so mad? I said, it's because comfortable people like you ain't mad enough. And that's, that's, all my, that's my word. Yeah. Uh, and now education news. Welcome to the heart of the program. This week I've got so much education stuff. Um, I got like four pages of notes, so let's just get right to it. First of all, Bill and Melinda Gates have lost their minds. There's a story I put on Facebook, and a lot of people have seen this and commented on it, and I've seen it posted by other people as well. It's unbelievable. Here's the headline. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and this is from the Washington Post technology blog, or education blog. Uh, yeah, it's called Answer Sheet. It's actually a really good blog. You should check it out. Um, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation funds $1.1 million grant for bracelets that measure student engagement. Here's the way she wrote it. In the you-can't-make-this-stuff-up category... The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is spending about $1.1 million to develop a way to physiologically measure how engaged students are by their teachers' lessons. This involves galvanic skin response bracelets that kids would wear so their engagement levels could be measured. Imagine that! You're, you're in class wearing this little bracelet, and I have a readout on my computer as the teacher says, like, Johnny's not engaged. Now, if, if, if that were to happen... One of two things might happen. We might say, Johnny, pay attention! And then engagement would spike, right? Or the administrators might look at my readout and go, Oh, Mr. P doesn't have Johnny's engagement level very high. He needs to get fired. He needs to get destroyed. <laughs> um, yeah, get destroyed! That's the name of this episode. Um, yeah, it's just, what the heck? It, it's, so, it's so weird. Now, here's the thing. A day after this was posted on the Washington Post answer sheet site, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation issued an update and clarification. The study will use these bracelets, but only to study how well students are actually paying attention compared to other indicators. So there's something that foundation issued this statement the genesis of the project came in similar research done with autistic students which found that they often were engaged in learning even when it did not seem that they were from outward appearances so it may be that what they're researching is um uh the ways in which students show that they're engaged even though it might seem like they're not which i respect that kind of research my concern with this is that the bill and melinda gates foundation is overwhelmingly focused on so-called accountability for teachers, which I've talked about before. How do you measure that? It's very unclear. And taking punitive action against uh, teachers who don't meet standardized test benchmarks and other very unreliable standards and measurement. Um, I dare say if we were to use that sort of cutthroat system of making inefficient workers get destroyed, then I wonder how many people at Microsoft would get destroyed, and maybe we should have a, a Bill Gates uh, measure for you know how well he's being a 
insane billionaire, uh, whatever. Um, meanwhile, Diane Ravitch, uh, is a great lady. Let me tell you about Diane Ravitch. If you know who she is, awesome. If not, get ready to learn because she was a, um, secretary, assistant secretary of education under George W. Bush. And she was a big supporter of the business model of education reforms that Bush was promoting, especially with no child left behind. After a few years, however, um, and because she was keeping her mind open, Ms. Ravitch, excuse me, Dr. Ravitch, uh, realized what kind of effect these reforms were having on teachers, and she totally changed her tune. She totally turned the other way, and she now is the most vociferous and most energetic champion of actual quality education, smaller class sizes, fighting against poverty, and recognizing all of the incredible obstacles that some kids face in achieving academic excellence. And um, so she has a great blog that you should check out. It's dianeravitch.net, and uh, I'll link to it. She's So because I got on her blog this week, I came up with a lot of stuff related to education this week. So let me get to some of her stuff. Um, she wrote a piece called Vouchers and the Future of Public Education. And she wrote, next year, Louisiana will expand this voucher program to all students to get mini vouchers, which can be used to pay private vendors for tutoring, apprenticeships, online courses, whatever. Given the absence of any due diligence in the rollout of this year's voucher program, you can just imagine the private vendors that will spring up to claim millions of dollars from the state treasury. Bear in mind that public education is level funded, so all these millions for vouchers and charters and online schooling and tutoring will come right out of the public school budget, making... Classes in public schools more overcrowded, closing libraries, shutting down services for students that need them. And, for whatever reason, can't get them from these private sources. Uh, she quotes from an article from Reuters about how the new schools are teaching. The school willing to accept the most, this is from this Reuters article now, the school willing to accept the most voucher students, 314, is New Living Word in Ruston, which has a top-ranked basketball team, but no library. Students spend most of the day watching TVs in bare-bones classrooms. Each lesson consists of an instructional DVD that intersperses biblical verses with subjects such as chemistry or composition. The article continues. The Upper Room Bible Church Academy in New Orleans, a bunker-like building with no windows or playground. No windows in this academy also has plenty of slots open. It seeks to bring in 214 voucher students worth up to $1.8 million in state funding. At Eternity Christian Academy in Westlake, pastor-turned-principal Marie Carrier hopes to secure extra space to enroll 135 voucher students, though she now has room for just a few dozen. Her 1st through 8th grade students sit in cubicles for much of the day and move at their own pace through Christian workbooks, such as a beginning science text that explains what God made on each of the six days of creation. This is in a classroom. They are not exposed to the theory of evolution. They're not exposed to the theory of evolution. Even if you believe that creationism ought to be taught alongside evolution as equally valid theories to explain where humans come from, these kids aren't even being exposed to the theory of evolution. Next up, they're going after heliocentrism. Get it out of your head, this crazy Earth orbiting the sun crap. That's not the way it works. The Earth is at the center of creation. That's what the Bible says. Shut up, kids. Quote, we try to stay away from all those things that might confuse our children, Carrier said. So I'm assuming they're not reading any literature at all, because there's nothing more confusing than literature. Hey, read the Metamorphosis and tell me you're not confused. 
Other schools approved for state-funded vouchers. This is still the Reuters article. Other schools approved for state-funded vouchers use social studies texts warning that liberals threaten global prosperity, Bible-based math books that don't cover modern concepts such as set theory, and there's a fascinating look at the confluence between science and religion. They don't agree. Set theory, they say, is moral relativism. It leads to moral relativism. It's just like, what? Uh, and biology texts built around refuting evolution. And the point Ravage makes here is that that's that's a bellwether. This is a look at... I mean, we had uh, Edison schools, okay? And I wrote about that in my thing, Profit Without Honors, which you can find on justtext.org. Um, that was an almost completely unqualified disaster. And so that was sort of the first large-scale look at how these vouchers are going to work. If it's breaking it down to the local level, it sounds like we've got some interesting schools in store. And 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 who's going to say these schools all need to meet these certain guidelines? Because that's the thing with public schools. They're not meeting the guidelines. They're not doing the good job. We need more accountability. Where's the accountability for all these private schools? None. There is none. Okay. Then uh, Diane Ravitch wrote a piece about Michelle Rhee, and uh, Michelle Rhee is another very interesting person, but not in the cool Diane Ravitch method of interesting, more in the kind of Albert Fish method of interesting. Maybe not that bad. Michelle Rhee's not an Albert Fish, but she don't look up Albert Fish. He was a serial killer. He's a real weird, horribly disturbing person. Um, no, Michelle Rhee is a Sarah Palin-esque type of individual. She's smarter than Sarah Palin. Like I don't believe Michelle Rhee's working from a position of willful ignorance, but I do believe that she's completely wrong about how she sees what's wrong with the education system and how to fix it. And so for that reason, I hate her. No, wait, I don't hate her. I hate everything she does and everything she says. Big difference. Um, okay, so this is Diane Ravitch writing on her blog. The district. So Michelle, if you don't know, Michelle Rhee was hired as uh, this new education sort of superintendent of the D.C. school system. And the D.C. school system has a lot of problems, like a lot of things in D.C. Um, it, it's it's a very uh, there's a lot of poverty in D.C. I, I don't know if I can say it's a very poor community because there's there's obviously a lot of wealth in Washington D.C. Um, but it's got a lot of income inequality, and there's a lot of really poor people in D.C., and a lot of the schools are in really bad shape, and they have been for quite a while. And so she came in, Michelle Rhee came in and said, we're going to change things up. We're going to make the tough decisions, kind of like Scott Walker said in Wisconsin. We're going to make the tough decisions. We're going to do things that may not be popular, but they're the right things to do. And she closed a lot of schools, and she fired a lot of teachers. And as I said in the past, you know, a lot of people who lived near those schools and they liked a lot of things about those schools. Maybe not everything, but they liked many things about the schools. They said, wait a minute, what the heck? You're closing our school. No, this is bad. Um, now, closing a school is a tough thing because I know that if you have two schools with 500 students in them each, then maybe you can't be as efficient with the money if you combine those two schools and you have one school with 1,000 people, but they say you only need one principal. You only need you know, one set of student services staff. You can save a lot of money by combining schools. Okay, I get that. But... The sledgehammer approach that she used was the furthest thing from democracy you can imagine, right? And I would say, if you want to improve a school system, you need to do it in a democratic way. Because these are people's lives you're talking about. These are their children. And this is something Michelle Reese said on a panel that I will talk about in just one moment, is that when you talk about education reform and you talk about people who are teaching in the classroom and what kind of schools kids are going to, you ought to think about it in terms of what I want my kid going to that school, what I want my kid being in that teacher's classroom. And that's a good question. And I don't think she took that approach in terms of the large-scale reforms, even though that was her thinking on the teacher-by-teacher basis, which, as I say, is fine. Anyway, here's what Diane Ravitch says about Michelle Rhee uh, and the District of Columbia School District in general. 
The District of Columbia has the largest black-white achievement gap and the largest Hispanic-white gap of any urban district tested by the federal government. For America's urban districts, the black-white gap in fourth grade reading is 30 points. In D.C., it is a staggering 64 points. The Hispanic-white gap nationally in this grade is 29 points. In D.C., it is a huge 51 points. In no other district, uh, no other district comes close to D.C. when it comes to achievement gaps. Michelle Ree says in her letter that, and she has links to the letter, she's talking about, uh, studies have shown that in just one year, students with an effective teacher are able to improve by one and a half grade levels. These effects are so significant that the achievement gap between low-income or minority students and their wealthier or white peers can effectively be erased by only three consecutive years of highly effective teachers. Readers of this blog recognize this as the same claim made by Melinda Gates. Now, Ravitch goes on to say, reminder, it didn't happen in D.C. on Rees Watch. Also, it has not happened in any other district, not in New York City under Joel Klein's control, nor in New Orleans, the district often held up as the model for the nation because of having wiped out public education and the teachers union. And as blogger and TF, Teach for America alum Gary Rubenstein has demonstrated, the study on which this claim is based is 20 years old, and the findings are not all that strong, nor has anyone figured out how to fill an entire school district with teachers who get a gain of 18 months and 12 months of instructions. Certainly Michelle Ree has not. So, um, yeah, this whole... No, and here, here's the thing. The, 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 the business model reform movement says that what we need is more accountability and we need to get rid of bad teachers. And we, need to, we, need to, we don't need to worry about class size. That's what Bill and Melinda Gates say all the time. Class size doesn't matter, and it, what matters is having great teachers in front of the classroom. Now, as I've said before, I am a great teacher. I recognize that they want me in front of as many kids as possible because, yeah, that should happen. Duh, I'm a great teacher, and I should be the one teaching your kids. Okay, I accept that. I hear you. I know what that's like. <clears throat> but... Um, let me tell you this, as one of those great teachers, the number one thing I would like to see in classes is smaller class sizes. Because the best way for me to allow me to be a great teacher is to make sure I'm not overwhelmed with 100 billion students demanding more and more and more in my attention. Because then I have less and less to offer each individual kid. So class sizes matter. I mean, that's just anecdotally for me. I'll get to the research in a minute. There was a panel discussion that uh, Diane Ravitch was on with Michelle Ree. They were in the same room. Now, the organizers were smart enough to put someone in between the two of them, so they never had to, like, they didn't have the chance to punch each other or nothing, but I could tell they wanted to. Um, now, Michelle Ree was really in the minority here, and not just because she's the only Asian-American woman on the panel, but because um, everybody else on the panel seemed to agree that the business model approach that she advocates is a very simplistic and can often be a very damaging way of looking at school reform. Um, three of the panel members were African-American. Uh, two of them were women, Diane Ravitch and Michelle Ree. Um, one of them was an elderly guy who has done a lot of research on uh, how to make schools better. He's really interesting. His last name was Comer. Uh, and uh, then there was another guy who was Professor Bobo, I think his name was. Um, and I don't really know anything about him. Um, and then there's another guy I'm going to talk about in just a second. Yeah, the most interesting part of this discussion is actually not watching Ravitch rip Ree's arguments apart, which I was, that's what I was most looking forward to, actually. No, the most interesting stuff was from a Princeton researcher named Angel Harris, who says, among other interesting things, uh, these two things. Uh, controlling for 61 measures of parental involvement only affected the achievement gap by 7%. So we hear a lot that um, the achievement gap, uh, I mean, 
obviously everyone agrees the achievement gap is a big problem. It sucks. It's a disgrace that in the United States, um, so many African-American students are at such lower levels than white students in terms of learning basic curriculum and skills and all the rest of it. Now, the question is, how do we close that gap? And one of the things we hear is parental involvement. And there's no question that we need more parental involvement in the schools. I try very hard to get parents involved in my classroom. I send out a letter at the beginning of the year. I'm sending out emails constantly. I'm, I have a Twitter feed and all the rest of it. Um, and, and, you know, I try to get in touch in other ways as well. Now, as a high school teacher, I'm also trying to um, make it clear to my students that I want to deal with them as adults as much as possible. And I've had students get mad when I call home because they say, hey, why don't you just deal with me? I'm an adult. Just talk to me like an adult. And I said to the kid, I've tried that. You walked away from me. Like, whatever. Um, the point being that uh, it's important to have parents involved. There's no doubt about it. However, we should not overemphasize the value of parental involvement because, as he says, Looking at 61 different ways that parents are involved, reading to kids and keeping track of you know, what kids are doing and, and all these other ways, um, 61 different methods of parental involvement. He says that they affected the achievement gap 7%. And he went on to say, and Angel Harris, an African-American gentleman, and I mention that only because I don't want you to think that this is some sort of weird um, racist perspective. It could, of course, still be a racist perspective. I don't believe it is. Anyway, whatever. Uh, he says, many parents, especially, he says, many black parents, use punitive responses to poor school performance. Now, I will point out right away that as a white person, I know that there are lots of white parents who use punitive responses to poor school performance as well. The point he makes is that punitive responses result in even lower performance for kids. So when we talk about parental involvement, we need to be clear that this is not automatically going to result in better outcomes. Because if you have more parental involvement, but the parent's response to their kid messing up in school is, punishment! coming down on them like a ton of bricks, uh, you know, whatever, that's not going to result in a better outcome for the kid. Um, now, in certain, I always wonder about the certain extreme cases which have nothing to do with race, nothing to do with class. This, uh, child abuse is a pathology that cuts across every sociological indicator there is. But there are some parents who physically abuse their children or abuse them in other ways. And I'm always, it's not going to prevent me from being in touch with parents, but I always wonder about a kid... Who, who seems like he doesn't have a very good relationship with his parents. And if I call home, is that kid going to get a beating that night? And, and I don't want that. That's not going to help the kid. If anything, that's going to have the opposite effect. That's going to make the kid more resentful and angry and, and hate me more probably and hate school and all the rest of it. Now, again, like I said, that's not going to keep me from being in touch with the parents. Uh, if I, you know, if we find out that a kid's being abused, we are required by law to report it, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to, you know... That's nothing to do with that. Um, but I, I just think those are things to keep in mind when we talk about parental involvement. Important as it is, it's not a cure-all. It's not a silver bullet. And this is something everybody on the panel, even Michelle Ree, agreed on. No such thing as a silver bullet. And we should be very careful about what we make sound like a silver bullet. Also on this panel, one audience member, uh, they had a Q&A session. He runs a high-performing charter school in Rhode Island, and he asked whether educators were being asked to overcome too many obstacles by themselves. And this is something that a lot of the people on the panel said is that, you know, I mean, Diane Ravitch's point, one of her points, and, and the point of some other people on the panel as well was that, you know, poverty is often, people like Michelle Ree often say, uh, poverty is an excuse. People say that, oh, you know, kids in poverty, uh, you know, oh, Michelle Ree will accuse people like Diane Ravitch of finding excuses. 
Like, never mind about what works in the school, we're, we can't overcome the poverty. But Diana Ravitch's point is the same one that Gene Anion made, which is the same one that Jonathan Kozol makes, which is the same one that uh, Jamie Vollmer says in his book, Schools Cannot Do It Alone, which is that we right now have a mindset in this country that says that no matter where the kids are coming from, no matter what kind of blueberries we are sending into the school, in Jamie Vollmer's terminology, and if you don't know the blueberry story, it's a great one, find it. We are expecting teachers to magically make everything all better and to reorient the children for lifelong learning and self-confidence and awareness of self and knowledge about the world and self-esteem and getting along with others and 21st century technology uh, recognition and uh, all this other stuff in addition to the core curriculum stuff we're supposed to be teaching them. And we cannot do it alone. Thank you, Jamie Vollmer, for writing that book because it's so true. That is exactly what we're being asked to do, and it's impossible. And again, the conspiracy theorists will say that's the whole point of the business model reforms, is to set the public schools up for failure in order to point to them and go, look, they can't do it. Give us the reins of control. We'll let the private sector do it right. And it sounds like the way that's going to happen is cubicles where you study the Bible instead of learning biology or whatever. Um, then I found this thing about, I was looking about merit pay, because there's a lot of talk about merit pay. We should pay good teachers more and, and pay bad teachers less and get rid of the bad teachers and blah, blah, blah. Once again, I will ask, how do you determine who's a good teacher, who's a bad teacher, blah, 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 blah. I mean, look, when it comes to me, yeah, you're going to find data that supports my claim that I'm a great teacher, of course. Duh. Just ask my students. But, unfortunately, there are some mediocre teachers who also will have students who go, she's great, because she doesn't give us homework. <laughs> anyway, um... But the value-added approach isn't enough either, man. Whatever. Um, so there, there's this, this Freakonomics, and I, have, I don't know how I feel about Freakonomics. Some things they, I, they do I hate, but this was good. Uh, they said, okay, merit pay for teachers. What does the research say? Which is great. I love when they do this. New York Times does this sometimes. Here's this question that's on a lot of people's minds. Let's see what these experts say. And they have a wide variety of people respond, and that's what Freakonomics did. They had this group of people respond uh, to the question of merit pay for teachers. So I'm going to tell you about several other responses, two of them. Two is several. Okay, the first one is Richard Rothstein, who is a research associate at the Economic Policy Institute and a senior fellow at the Warren Institute on Law and Social Policy at UC Berkeley Law School from 1999 to 2002. He was the national education columnist of the New York Times. He is the author of Grading Education, Getting Accountability Right, and he lectures widely about education policy issues. He wrote this. When healthcare systems, such as Medicare, attempted to reward cardiac surgeons or their hospitals or practice groups for survival rates of their patients, medical professionals responded by declining to operate on the sickest patients. This is me now jumping in. Uh, this is something I, I posted a similar thing uh, about a guy who um, was talking about uh, this sort of fictional conversation with his dentist, and he laid out the business model recommendations vis-a-vis -vis how it would look if you did that for a dentist's office. Uh, whoever has the most cavities in their patients let, gets less money. Well, duh, exactly what he says. You just don't work with those people. Um, okay, getting back to what Mr. Rothstein said. Uh, when the Department of Labor attempted to reward local agencies for placing the unemployed in jobs, the agencies increased placement rates by getting more workers into more easily found, short-term, poorly paid jobs, and fewer into harder-to-find but more skilled long-term jobs. Uh, when prosecutors have been rewarded for the number of cases cleared, more plea bargains based on false confessions resulted. When U.S. News & World Report ranks colleges partly by the share of applicants for whom they have no space, colleges respond by soliciting unqualified high school students to apply. 
So there are there are a lot of instances in which this merit pay idea has led to some really nasty unintended consequences and not the kind of change that you would want to see from merit pay. Um, he goes on to say, across the nation, NCLB has created incentives for principals in order to order teachers to focus attention on students whose prior performance indicates a likelihood of falling just short of the passing point. These are students for whom slight improvement will have disproportionate impact on a school's, and thus a principal's, performance rating. There is no incentive to focus instruction on high achievers who will pass in any event, nor on the lowest achievers who may make great gains but won't count, quote-unquote, unless the gains are so great as to pass. And that's a really interesting point because it means that all of our energy becomes focused on a very narrow part of the community in much the same way as the political process these days in the United States is focused almost entirely on these swing voters who seem to oscillate you know with the blowing of the wind on who they're going to vote for and therefore every candidate is everything they say is focus grouped to try to appeal to this tiny population in order to swing them one way or another. And that could happen with this merit pay thing as well, is that all of our energy then, I mean, and it's not just merit pay, it's, it's any sort of high stakes testing regime that focuses on numbers alone as a measure of learning, because it just means we just got to get this one group of kids moved up a little bit in order to get the numbers to look better. And as he says, people uh, the, you know who aren't aren't doing very well in general might make great gains, but they're not making they're not passing the test. All right, there was another uh, in, entry into this Freakonomics quorum about merit pay from David Figlio, who is a professor of education, social policy, and economics at Northwestern University, a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and an associate of the Institute for Research on Poverty at the University of Madison, Wisconsin. Woo! Uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison, excuse me, and a fellow at the Institute for Policy Research at Northwestern University. He wrote, There's evidence that people who choose to become teachers tend to be more cooperative and tend to wish to avoid competition. When policymakers or experimenters impose merit pay systems on people who don't like to compete with one another, they may find that teachers aren't willing or wired to compete in meaningful ways. Another possibility is that teachers may respond to policies they perceive as permanent, but not those they view as temporary, or those where they believe the target is moving. Uh, so he makes a distinction between rewards for entire schools that show performance and rewarding individual teachers. And he says that rewarding entire schools that make improvements is a much better way to do merit pay if we do it at all, because that way your people are working together as a group, the way a lot of teachers tend to think, cooperatively. Um, Educators might not believe that it is worth the extra effort to change their behaviors in ways that might be rewarded one year, but not the next. And as somebody who's been in the education game for 10 years now, I can tell you that there are a lot of things that come, and there are a lot of things that go. And um, there are a lot of changes that happen all the time in education, and sometimes you get the sense that they're going to be around for a while, and sometimes you can tell that they're not going to be around very long at all. And like he says... You don't want to put a lot of work and effort into something that you think isn't going to be very important next year. So there's that. Then there was a piece from the Washington Post, uh, the answer sheet thing again. Uh, a good site. You should check it out. Uh, it's coming up here. And it's uh, by Valerie Strauss. Actually, no, she posted it. But it was actually uh, a guest piece that was written by Esther Quintero, a research associate at the Albert Schenker Institute who focuses on higher education, women in STEM, which is like science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, I think, and early childhood. A version of this appeared on the Institute's blog. And she wrote this. Uh, the headline is, Why Merit Pay for Teachers Sounds Good But Isn't. 
She writes this, Although individual pay for performance, or merit pay, is a widespread practice among U.S. businesses, the research on its effectiveness shows it to be of limited utility. And then she gives a lot of links to the research. She says, see here, 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 and here. Mostly because it is easy for its benefits to be swamped by unintended consequences, like the guy in the Freakonomics Quorum said. <clears throat> in 1971, a research psychologist named Edward Decci published a paper which concluded that while verbal reinforcement and positive feedback tends to strengthen intrinsic motivation, what drives a person internally, monetary rewards tend to weaken it. This is that truth versus money thing we were talking about in AP English, right kids? In 1999, Decci and his colleagues published a meta-analysis of 128 stu studies, again concluding that when people do things in exchange for external rewards, their intrinsic motivation tends to diminish. Once a certain activity is associated with a tangible reward, such as money, or stickers, or candy, or whatever, people will be less inclined to participate in the task when the reward is not present. Decci concluded that extrinsic rewards make it harder for people to sustain self-motivation. And I think we would all agree, hopefully, that in school, what we really need kids to do is to be self-motivated. Now, I've said before, it's really hard to find people who are self-motivated to learn about gerunds, for instance. I mean, I am, but that's because I'm a big nerd. All right, I get that. I understand. And that's why I think compulsory education, to a certain point, even though I try to be, you know, mostly anarchistic in the way I see the world, I believe that compulsory education is important because people should know what gerunds are and they should know which form of yours is the right one and all that stuff. Um, but the, that sort of compulsion, that sort of, you know, authority or external punishments or rewards, that should be uh, the most minimally used thing there ever could be. It should be completely minimal. Uh, the woman goes on to say, uh, research demonstrates that simply activating the idea of money in someone's head can by itself reduce that person's pro-social behavior in subsequent unrelated situations. For example, researchers Vos, Mead, and Good in 2008 showed that making money salient can later make someone less likely to perform pro-social tasks, such as helping a stranger pick up pencils that have dropped. What else happens when monetary incentives are brought in? As it happens, there is now a growing body of applied educational research to suggest that the answer is not much. So, for the record, I'm against merit pay in education for all of those reasons and others as well. Meanwhile, The New Yorker had a piece, and I'm going to find out who the author is so that you don't just think I'm saying The New Yorker. Uh, Nicholas Lehman uh, wrote a piece in The New Yorker called The Overblown Crisis in American Education. And he has some very good points here as well. Um, he talks about the narrative about charter schools and how we should have charter schools because the regular public schools, the, the claim is the public schools suck. They all suck and they're horrible and they need to go away and, and they need to be drastically reformed along business model recommendations from the CEOs of Xerox and Bill and Melinda Gates. They all tell us how to run schools better, right? That's the narrative. And so here's what he says in this New Yorker piece. Although most of the specific charter schools one encounters in this narrative are very good, the data do not show that charter schools in general are better than district schools, the one, the public schools. There are also many school reform efforts besides charter schools. The one with the best sustained record of producing better educated children in difficult circumstances in hundreds of schools over many years is a rigorously field-tested curriculum called Success for All. But because it's not part of the storyline, it goes almost completely unmentioned. Similarly, on the issue of tenure, the clear implication of most school reform writing these days that abolishing teacher tenure would increase students' learning is an unproved assumption. 
Um, and he points out that, as I said in the Prophet again, Without Honors thing, um, there's a lot of, of smoke and fire uh, about how bad the schools are. And there are a lot of schools that are really bad. There are a lot of problems in U.S. public schools. There's no question about it. However, um, there are a lot of things that are great about U.S. public schools. And we, we have a very serious potential to destroy some of those great things about U.S. public schools and to overlook all the great things that happen in those schools because we're unsatisfied with the problems there. Um, all right, moving on to our last education story, finally. Uh, this is from the United Kingdom, and the headline is nine-year-old... Well, this isn't the actual headline. This is the headline I wrote for it, but Wired Magazine had this headline. Uh, nine-year-old who changed school lunches is silenced by politicians. And, uh, yeah, she had a blog about the bad food in her school. And then she, the man came up and said, shut it down. Here's what the Wired article says. For the past two months, one of my favorite reads has been Never Seconds, a blog started by nine-year-old Martha Payne of Western Scotland, sorry, she's in Scotland, um, to document the unappealing, non-nutritious lunches she was being served in her pr public primary school. Payne, whose mother is a doctor and father has a small farming property, started blogging in early May and went viral in days. She had a million viewers within a few weeks and two million this morning, was written up in Time, The Telegraph, The Daily Mail, and a number of food blogs, and got support from TV Chef Lebrity, I guess that's a word now. Chef Lebrity, really? Really? Jamie Oliver, whose series Jamie's School Dinners kicked off school food reform in England. Well, goodbye to all that. This afternoon, Martha, who goes by Veg on the blog, posted that she will have to shut down her blog because she has been forbidden to take a camera into school. And I think that sucks. I think it's awesome when kids... Um, you know, get active in real-world communication, especially, like, writing a blog. I, I can't get my kids to even maintain a blog and keep it up. She was doing it every day. That's awesome. <sighs> now, obviously, her blog is making the school look very bad. And let me say this. On behalf of the lunchroom people who work in the lunchroom, usually it's ladies. So the lunchroom ladies who work there preparing that food, they usually don't decide what gets made and served to kids for lunch. A lot of times, the ladies in the lunchroom are probably just as frustrated with the poor quality and the few options. They're doing the best they can with the resources they have, which is not much. And there was that great part in Supersize Me where they went to that school, I think it was in Appleton, that had, like, they do all that baking and fresh vegetables and fruits and stuff. Um, and I think that's awesome. And I think that I would like to see that sort of school lunch structure put into play in more schools. I don't really know much about why it can't be done or why it's not being done uh, to have alternatives to the standard sort of school lunch thing. I know that the people in the school where I work do an amazing job uh, getting you know the best food they can to kids, and they have certain constraints, just like I have certain constraints as a teacher, and everybody's doing the best they can, the constraints they have. Um, yeah, so I would say go easy on the lunch ladies, but... Um, we should look at the system and how it's decided what resources will be available to the people in the lunchroom in order to make the food that they then serve to the kids. Blah, blah, blah. Let's talk about some killer robots. Kill all humans. Kill all humans. Must kill all humans. Bender, wake up! I was having the most wonderful dream. I think you were in it. Uh, uh listen, Bender, uh, uh, where's your bathroom? Bath what? Bathroom. What room? Bathroom. What, what? Ah, never mind. Mm. Hey, sexy mama. 
Want to kill all humans? Actually, this week we don't have any killer robots to talk about. We do have one story that's about a computer virus, which is sort of robot-ish. But the biggest article that I want to tell you about is this one that was in The Guardian, which was called Why Our Food is Making Us Fat. And it's from the UK, but it has obvious implications in the United States. And in fact, a lot of the... uh, the reasons why humans have become more obese in recent years uh, has to do with U.S. food policy. Uh, so I'm going to read big chunks of this, but that's because it's so important, and I don't think we're likely to see it elsewhere ever. So let me go ahead and just read some of this. Why are we so fat? We have not become greedier as a race. We are not, contrary to popular wisdom, less active. A 12-year study, which began in 2000 at Plymouth Hospital, measured children's physical activity and found it the same as 50 years ago. Let me say that again. Not This isn't the article now. This is me. We're not less active than we used to be, according to this study. Okay, a 12-year study, which began in the year 2000. Um, now... That's not to say we shouldn't be more active. I recognize that. I'm trying to ride my bike more. Kids need more physical education in schools, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. We, we have a lot of things that are encouraging us to be sedentary. Computers, Facebook, video games, uh, you know, reality television, Hulu, all the rest of it. Yes, there are a lot of things that are, encourage us to be sedentary. And human beings ought to move around more. Yes, I get that. I'm with that. But if it's true that this research found, you know, if this is what's true, that we are not more less active than we used to be, then don't give me that as a reason why we're so fat. I don't want to hear that. I think a lot of that comes from what people think is probably true. They look around and they're like, well, I have some friends that sit around and do nothing all day. But you know what? I'll bet you have some skinny friends that sit around and do nothing too. Don't you? You probably do. That's right. Let's look at what, this is what Bertrand Russell was saying. Let's look at the world as it actually is. Not as what you think it ought to be or what it might be or what would be beneficial if it were the case. Let's look at what actually is the truth. The article continues. I'm not going to interrupt every sentence, don't worry, because if I do that, we'll never get through this. All right, anyway, um, something has changed, and that something is very simple. It's the food we eat, and this is what Supersize Me was saying, too. More specifically, the sheer amount of sugar in that food, sugar that we are often unaware of. The story begins in 1971. I'm going to get through this as fast as I can. Richard Nixon was facing re-election. The Vietnam War was threatening his popularity at home, but just as big an issue with voters was the soaring cost of food. If Nixon was to survive, he needed food prices to go down, and that required getting a very powerful lobby on board, the farmers. Nixon appointed Earl Butts, (laughs) uh, an academic from the farming heartland of Indiana, to broker a compromise. Butts, an agriculture expert, had a radical plan that would transform the food we eat, and in doing so, the shape of the human race. Butts pushed farmers into a new industrial scale of production and into farming one crop in particular, corn. U.S. cattle were fattened by the immense increases in corn production. Burgers became bigger. Fries fried in corn oil, or as the U.K. people call them, chips, became fattier. Corn became the engine for the massive surge in the quantities of cheaper food being supplied to American supermarkets. Everything from cereals to biscuits and flour found new uses for corn. As a result of Butts's free market reforms, American farmers almost overnight went from parochial smallholders to multimillionaire businessmen with a global market. One Indiana farmer believes that America could have won the Cold War by simply starving the Russians out of corn, but instead they chose to make money. Now, I will jump in and say two things. Number one, I don't know if it's fair to call them free market reforms because um, it had to do with government subsidy for corn production. So that's not really free market. That's that's state-sponsored free state uh, state-sponsored capitalism, which is different from the free market fundamentalism. Whatever. Um, 
Yeah, and the other thing I'll say is that there's a really good documentary film called King Corn, uh, which has a lot of this background in it, uh, th- more information about the history of how corn became so prominent, and it includes an interview with a very elderly, uh, 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 this Earl Butts guy. Uh, they found him, and they went and interviewed him, and it was a very, you know, I mean, he's really old, he could barely, you know put together a coherent sentence, but uh, it was very interesting to have the conversation with him, and what the guys do is they they go to this farm in, I think, Wisconsin, uh, and they grow an acre of corn, which, if you can see how, I mean, they lease it from somebody who has, like, a hundred acres or whatever, so the one acre is this tiny little plot that they have, and they grow their, you know, they grow their corn just like the the farmer does, but they're trying not to use pesticides and all the rest of it. Um, so, and, and along the way, of course, they learn about how you know people get subsidies for growing corn and the equipment used and how the prices are set and all the rest of it. It's a fascinating documentary, King Corn. Watch it; it's fascinating. Uh, they also try to make high fructose corn syrup, which is a, an incredibly complicated process, and none of the companies that make it will talk to them at all or let them anywhere near their factories and all the rest of it. Anyway, the, the article goes on. The food industry had its eyes uh, on the creation of a new genre of food, something they knew the public would embrace with huge enthusiasm, believing it to be better for their health, low fat. It promised an immense business opportunity forged from the potential disaster of heart disease. But, says Lustig, whoever, uh, there was a problem. Quote, when you take the fat out of a recipe, food tastes like cardboard, and you need to replace it with something. That something being sugar. Dun, dun, dun. In London, Dr. Tony Goldstone is mapping out the specific parts of the brain that are stimulated by this process. According to Goldstone, one of the byproducts of obesity is that a hormone called leptin ceases to work properly. Normally, leptin is produced by the body to tell you that you are full. However, in obese people, it becomes severely depleted, and it is thought that a higher intake of sugar is a key reason. When the leptin doesn't work, your body simply doesn't realize that you should stop eating. Now, I I eat more than I should. Anybody who looks at me can probably tell that in an instant. And part of that is that I've sort of trained myself to kind of ignore some of the messages that my body sends me because delicious food is yummy, and I like eating yummy things. So I'll keep eating even though my body's like, hey, dude, you're full, stop. Because I'm like, but it's still here and it's still delicious. Like Homer Simpson said when he was in that steak-eating contest with Red Barclay. Uh, There's still food on my plate, but I don't want to eat it. <laughs> I've become everything I've ever hated. Um, So I recognize that certainly it's true for me. It's probably true for a lot of other people too. Uh, it's It's more convenient for me to ignore the signals that my body is sending me. However, if there is a chemical component here too, maybe I have a leptin deficiency. It's possible. Maybe I should be less of a greedy pig. Okay, I, I recognize that too. It's a little column A, a little column B perhaps. Who knows? Uh, anyway, he goes on to say, leptin raises a big question. Did the food industry knowingly create foods that were addictive, that would make you feel as though you were never satisfied and always wanted more? Well, this is this is me again. Uh, this is something that... um. That Morgan Spurlock pursued and supersized me because uh, it, it's 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 it, it, you know he said he had that feeling he was never really satisfied he was always kind of hungry even though his body was probably filled up um, okay so they asked this scientist uh, this Kessler guy Kessler is cautious in his response quote did they understand the neuroscience no but they learned experientially what worked end quote. This is highly controversial. If it could be proved that at some point the food industry became aware of the long-term detrimental effects that their products were having on the public and continued to develop and sell them anyway, the scandal would rival that of what happened to the tobacco industry. 
Later on in the article, and we're coming to the end here, uh, the relationship between the food industry and the scientists conducting research into obesity is also complicated by the issue of funding. There is not a great deal of money set aside for this work, and so the food industry has become a vital source of income. But this means that the very same science going into combating obesity could also be used to hone the products that are making us obese. Many of the scientists I spoke to are wary about going on the record because they fear their funding will be taken away if they speak out. Sounds like that thing I said earlier. And I don't remember what the context was, so I can't be more specific. But I know I said something earlier in this podcast, probably about an hour ago. We're already at 84 minutes. I can't believe this is insane. It's not insane that I'm talking this long because you know me. I like to talk. What's insane is that anybody's listening to this horse crap. Anyway, the article finishes up with this. A previous attempt to bring in a soda tax was stopped by intense lobbying on Capitol Hill. The soft drinks industry paid for a new ward at Philadelphia Children's Hospital, and the tax went away. It was a children's obesity ward. So there you go. I think that the thing that Mayor Bloomberg is trying to do in New York City where he outlaws the sale of certain sizes of soft drinks, I think that's stupid. But I also recognize that there's a sense of desperation about obesity. Like, what can we do where we are to fight this obesity thing? And I don't know. I mean, I I recognize in some ways that, okay, first of all, I will say that I recognize that, and I know what people want to hear most right now is my philosophizing and theorizing about this news article I just spent 10 minutes reading. Um, Let me say this. There, There are a lot of people who say, oh, Obesity is a huge problem, public health issue, uh, I'm worried about your health. When in reality, what it is, they're mad about uh, people who don't fit a standard model of beauty. And they want chicks to be skinnier and hot. That's, I think, a lot of what drives this, you know professed concern about obesity. Um, So I have a lot of uh, respect and support for uh, the sort of fat liberation theorists who say, you know what, look, we have different body sizes. Uh, Look at the Venus of Willendorf, and it's a very different standard of beauty. Uh, Marilyn Monroe would be laughed out of modeling agencies today if she tried to get a job as a model or an actor. Um, There's no question about that. Uh, at the same time, I recognize that, you know what, obesity itself is a problem, and we, but, but here's the thing, because a lot of people are like, oh, just put the fork down, man, stop eating, and okay, yeah, duh, I just got done saying that I tend to eat too much, so yes, that's part of it, okay, I accept that, there has to be a personal responsibility element, however, dude, look, people, I hate to tell you this, okay, Government policy has a lot to do with how we live our lives, okay? And the food that's available to us and what we grow up being used to and, uh, you know, what we have in front of us and what's cheapest and what tastes the best has a lot to do with what the government decides to do and which crops the government supports and what we allow to be in the marketplace and not. And I think that gets ignored a lot of the time. People are just like, well, just personal responsibility. That's the end of it. It's not the end of it. I'm sorry. That's not enough. Because if that were the case, why not sell rat poison to three-year-olds, right? And why not sell crack to everybody? Uh, There are certain things that ought to be controlled. There are certain ways in which the government ought to, excuse me, not ought to. The government's going to control things in certain ways. Every government does that, okay? That's what government does. And I don't have any sympathy for these free market fundamentalists who say, oh, get rid of the FDA altogether. Let companies sell whatever they want to sell. Because then it'll just be a nightmare. And again, we'll be like scavenging on the streets with our gas masks on, you know, ripping dog flesh from the neighbor's dog's bones. And here's something for sale. Um, 
Anyway, let's move on. Uh, Stu sent me a thing about Iran being hit with a virus attack, which isn't really about robots, but it is um, to do with robotish stuff, I suppose. Uh, yeah, the article says, Iran's cyber defense organization, the Computer Ener- Emergency Response Team Coordination Center, in a message posted on its website, warned that a virus that is potentially more harmful than the Stuxnet worm that attacked Tehran's nuclear program has hit. It is estimated that the malicious software is 20 times more powerful than any other known cyber warfare program uh, and it could have only been made by a state. Kamran Napoleon, an Iranian cyber defense official, told the New York Times that the virus, quote, has a special pattern which you only see coming from Israel. Now, you don't have to look very far to see Iranian government agents who see Israel as an existential threat and they're coming to get us and all the rest of it. But uh, it's also true that Israel is very, 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 very opposed to Iran having a nuclear weapon and you can't blame them. After all, uh, Jews haven't really had it very good in uh, world affairs over the last 3,000 years, shall we say. But um, I will say that, you know, I don't think Iran's crazy. Now, first of all, it's it's nearly unanimously agreed by uh, intelligence experts in the United States and Israel that Iran does not have a nuclear weapons program. And a lot of people say Iran probably doesn't want a nuclear weapons program, but whatever. Um, yeah, if Iran wanted a nuclear weapon, given Israel's nukes, I would say Iran's not crazy for wanting a nuclear weapon. Now, I don't think either Iran or Israel should have nuclear weapons. I don't think the United States should have nuclear weapons. I don't think uh, India or Pakistan should have nuclear weapons. Uh, I think we should get rid of all of them. What a crazy... Boo! Get a haircut, hippie! All right, it's time to talk about some hip-hop. Because I was talking about the ego earlier in the show, and I wrote that thing about the ego on my blog, I linked to a song by a group called Lifesavers, uh, which is a really interesting group, so I figured I'd talk about them. Uh, I believe they only have two albums out, but I could be wrong. I know that uh, one of the MCs, Versatile, did a bit with Gift of Gab, so we talked about them recently. So, ooh, look at that link. Um, yeah, I got more links than Legend of Zelda. What's that? Um, yeah, so Lifesavers is, is one of these groups that often gets labeled as sort of conscious rap or whatever it is. Uh, put a label on it. Labels belong on soup cans, man. Uh, but there's no doubt that their lyrics are very intelligent, and they, they have tracks that are about things, and sometimes it's just sort of, you know, freestyling, here's a funky beat, or talking about how great they are, or whatever it is, but uh, they also have tracks that deal with weighty issues like... The Ego, and in fact, their song, Hello Hi Hey, from their first album, Spirit in the Stone, is probably, I'm trying to remember how I put it on the blog, I can't look it up right now because, well, I could, but we're 90 minutes in already, ugh. Anyway, um, Hello Hi Hey is a great song, and it's probably one of the best texts about the ego that's been written in the last 50 years. I'm willing to say that. Um... Yeah, and I'm gonna play you a part of it. That it sort of spoiler alert because it's I'm gonna give you give away the ending. I'm gonna play you the ending. the The song has three parts to it. I'm gonna play you the last part. In part one, the narrator, who's a guy named Versatile, is speaking with an eager up and coming young rapper who brags about how great he is. Then in part two, the narrator, Versatile, gets a phone call from a buddy who's very conceited. He has a swelled head because of all the success that he has enjoyed. And then the chorus comes in uh, right before part three. That's where we're going to start here. This is the chorus right before part three. Ready? Here we go. Hello, we're 
say about that track. I mean, it's awesome. Hopefully you realize it's awesome. When we do the hip-hop class, I play that as an example of a conceit. Uh, not because of conceitedness, ego, but an extended metaphor, uh, putting a characteristic like the ego into the personality of an individual and, and then extending it and having the past and the future version of oneself. It's so incredible. Um, and it's so funky. I think that's one of the great things about that song. Not only is it a powerful message about the danger of the ego taking over your thought process, but... Um, and, and just how the ego plays tricks on us all the time anyway. It's amazing. The movie Revolver is kind of stupid. It's Guy Ritchie's third movie, I think. Um, but it's, 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 it's not a great movie in general, but it's a really powerful exploration of the ego. And I like the idea of questioning and interrogating and challenging the ego. Um, but they do a good job of making it funky. It's a fun song and their flow is incredible and their meter and their rhyme and it's just glorious. But the other thing I noticed about that track, uh, is that, when, when his ego shows up and says, hey, it's me, I'm your ego, you know, I'm a big part of your decision-making process, he says, uh-uh, that's not me, I play the humble. That's the ego talking. When someone says to you, you, you have a large ego, your ego is what makes you say, nah, I don't have an ego problem. The person who is truly striving to restrain his or her ego will say, yeah, the ego is something that I'm always fighting with. The person who has his who is a prisoner to their ego will say, uh-uh, my ego doesn't affect me at all. I don't have a big ego. I don't have a swelled head. So beware of anybody who says, hey, you know, I, I don't I don't have a big ego. You have a big ego. I've been talking for an hour and a half nonstop. This is nuts. 
I got problems, man. You all knew that. All right, here we go. Um, John Fire Lame Deer was a Lakota Sioux mystic and a holy man who lived from 1900 to 1976. That's the year I was born. Dude, his spirit left him and entered me. Whatever. Uh, he spent many years of his childhood at a boarding school run by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which tried to break native children of traditional practices, forbid native languages, and converted young people to Christianity. Uh, those schools are crazy if you learn about what happened there. Just nightmare. There's one. They, they, they happened all over the world. There were some in Australia, the, the same thing with sort of indigenous people there. There's a really good movie called Rabbit Proof Fence, which is about um, some kids trying to get away from one of those places. Um, after spending many years riding the rodeo circuit and indulging in petty crimes, uh, John Fire Lame Deer settled on the Pine Ridge Reservation and worked with the American Indian Movement. And he wrote this in his autobiography, or I think his book written about him, had a quote from him in it. Um, here's what he said. Before our white brothers came to civilize us, we had no jails. Therefore, we had no criminals. You can't have criminals without a jail. We had no locks or keys, so we had no thieves. If a man was so poor that he had no horse, teepee, or blanket, someone gave him these things. We were too uncivilized to set much value on personal belongings. We wanted to have things only in order to give them away. We had no money, and therefore a man's worth couldn't be measured by it. We had no written law, no attorneys or politicians. Therefore, we couldn't cheat. We really were in a bad way before the white men came, and I don't know how we managed to get along without these basic things, which we are told are absolutely necessary to make a civilized society. Now, I've heard some people respond to that quote and other quotes like it by saying it's a bunch of bunk, that, or at least it's an exaggeration, that there was warfare between different nations of, of Indian communities, um, that there were, in fact, slaves held by some Indian nations, um, that there were jails and things, and, and maybe he's only referring to one group of, of indigenous people or whatever. Um, so the, the actual history, the truth, the, 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 the money-based truth of this quote is, I recognize, open to debate and discussion. Okay. However... What I think is really important about this quote here is the fact that it presents us with a challenge to the idea that the way things are is the way things always have been and or the way things always must be. Because I don't like thinking that way about anything. Bill Hicks said it's a ride. You know, we can configure the roller coaster any way we want to. And if we find that some part of our civilization, like the prison system, like the so-called war on drugs. And again, I will remind you that you must read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, because it's absolutely amazing. And it will change the way you look at the drug war and prisons in general. If we find that those things are not working for the betterment of our society, and they're not, we have to find some other way to organize our society. And unfortunately, most of us, and I was for a long time, are convinced that the way things are is the way things have been and the way things ought to be. But you know what? That's not always true. And if having an open mind means anything, it means being open to the possibility that maybe there's a better way to do things. And in fact, when it comes to, you know, criminal justice system and the drug war, there are better ways to do things. We can make changes that will actually improve the world uh, and make our society better for everyone and uh, not get trapped in the same old way of doing things because it's the way it's always been done. That's Shirley Jackson lottery-style thinking, man. Resist it. Fight back. Fight the power. Make a change. Ah! All right, that's it, people. 99 minutes. I'd say we're done. Yeah.
Show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast are on my blog, Didastic Synapse, FBESP.org slash Synapse. My website is the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, FBESP.org, with links to music and fiction and multimedia and lots of other stuff that I've made. Shoutouts this week to Bongo the Sane, who several weeks ago twittered, quote, I wonder what type of eggs you'll have on the Syncast this week, because I was eating lots of eggs while doing the show, but now I'm not doing that. I'm eating first and then doing the show later. What a notion. And today I had lunch with uh, um, Chris Stensrud, Mr. Stensrud. Thank you for lunch, dude. It was awesome. Had a great time um, chatting with you about stuff. I hope you enjoy the losers, and maybe you won't even listen to this. Who cares? Uh, Another shout-out to the Redditor Anxiety Man who is busting his hump all summer long, getting schools in Madison ready for the next school year, and to everyone who does the same work, support staff in our schools don't get a tenth of the respect or the pay they deserve, and I think they deserve more time off as well. I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there are dumb things that I forgot to cut out. I'm a very busy man. Deal with it, people. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thanks for listening. Please get in touch with feedback or questions or news articles. Maybe cut down on the news articles. Got to get so much stuff. And I end up with 100-minute shows. What's up with that? ESP. I <laughs> I'm going insane. My email address is esp at fbesp.org. You can also reach me on Twitter at dukescath, D-U-K-E-S-K-A-T-H. That's it. I'm done. I'm going to stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful.